physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Hello and welcome to Third Degree Burn. I'm your guest host, Kirk Greenfield, and I'm joined by regular hosts, Brian Hughes and Tim Elliott. Hi, guys. Welcome on this Sunday morning. Hello. Hey. It's it Mother's Day, so what else should we do except talk about uh, John Byrne? <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Well, robots. he is the mother of all artists. So. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, I don't... Uh, you can't get so, to me uh, about that. So on this day, we've covered all the uh, X-Men Elsewhere issues that are out to date, 1 through 10. And uh, we started talking about, well, a couple of episodes ago, Incredible Hulk annual number seven, which came out in 1978. And uh, I had to go out and order a copy off eBay uh, just to refresh my memory. And, you know, I think it sits someplace in my collection box uh, now that I see the cover. In fact, I think I remember this coming out on the spinner rack back in the day. I would have been in college and The Incredible Hulk would have been on TV, as it says right on the cover, Marvel's green skin TV sensation. I think that has a lot to do with how he's presented in this book. I mean, ever since he hit TV, Marvel's was putting him front and center on his book, bigger than life, um, just just really milking him and tying in that uh, that free publicity from the TV series. I don't know if you guys remember that time period. I wasn't watching oh. a lot of TV, but it was very obvious to me that they were riding this publicity as hard as they could. We it, watching the Hulk was a family staple every Friday night. If I remember, it was on Friday nights. Uh, that first episode, uh, it was like a two-hour special. And the, the thing that always sticks out in my head is the the scene of the Hulk's hand punching through that two-inch glass in that uh, that uh, bubble, whatever the, the 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 cell that they had. The decompression in. chamber, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was supposed to be like heavily armored and 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 super strong. And he just punches his hands through that super thick glass. And, and that's just one of those those images that's been burned into my head over the years. Um, but you know, as far as the book goes, you know, the thing was is that from the age of ten on, um, I made weekly, uh, if not more often, trips down to the local Utotem to to make my comic book purchases. And uh, you know, I mowed lawns and and did whatever I could to make money so that I could buy comic books on a weekly basis. And this was one that never showed up there. I didn't find this till years later, like about um, 82 to 84, when I, when I really started hitting the comic book shops. So, uh, I mean, yeah, again, I love the TV series. I watched it all the way to the end, and I've watched every one of the uh, after movies, the one with Thor, the one with Daredevil, and the death of. And, uh, you know, just uh, I, I always have mad love for that TV show. It's actually a pretty. I, I watched the show, and I, I have vivid memories of watching the pilot. 
I wasn't collecting comics at the time, so I wasn't aware of what was going on. I mean, I, I knew of, of Marvel and knew of comics and knew of all that stuff, but I wasn't. I was reading Starlog and I was reading uh, Fangoria and I was into that kind of stuff. <clears throat> I was not. Uh, I wasn't reading comics. I didn't get into those until I was about 18, so I wasn't. I couldn't make the connection about whether or not they were trying to put him, from, you know. Uh, uh, you know, put him more forward towards the books, but uh, the show was great. I, I I think I was an on again, off again watch. I don't know if I watched it religiously. Um, I did watch it. I don't. So I, I don't know if I finished watching the series. I did watch all the TV shows or the TV movies that you just mentioned, Brian. Um, yeah. Sorry, my Oops. series trying to talk to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what's weird that when uh, and I think I've talked to this before about people that that get on who are on this show or people that are in the our network usually grew up reading comics and i would you know and i i can pick out a handful of comics that i remember i might have bought one we were on vacation uh i might have remember reading it on the stand i didn't collect and i didn't uh buy them uh regularly so it's odd that i you know i kind of came in so much later that when i discovered it and i don't remember now well, I honestly couldn't tell you now why I got into comics, other than they're great. But so I'm a late I'm a late bloomer for comics, so I don't have those kid memories of oh I found this on the rack or uh, I remember reading this. But I have a memory of seeing this on the shelf in uh, Paramount News uh, Cellar in East Lansing, Michigan, right across the campus, uh, just off campus from Michigan State University, and I would have been in my senior year of. Uh, probably my senior year of college and I probably picked it up and flipped through it. And I got to tell you the, one of the images that really stuck in my mind that made me go, Hey, I do think I've seen this was the guy in the buckskin uniform and the mm-hmm. rifle that I would have called a mountain man or a mountaineer. Um, that really, you know, that, that drew me in that mystery of who is this? And I thought it was the petrified man. I thought it was that character that had repeated in the X-Men earlier, Gar- although I... Gar- I Gar- yes, Gar- yes. Yeah, because yeah. I, I was there for his that. origin back in uh, Kazar in, um, um, I think it's uh, Astonishing Tales 3 and 4 and 5 under, uh, I think it's uh, Barry Windsor Smith art. Anyway, that's who I thought it was at first, but then as you flip a little further, it's like, no, this is, this is a Sentinel story, this so... Anyways, we should talk probably about this issue. Um, I've spotted a couple things. I have questions about it. And well, this is first off, the... before ahead. we get into it, let's just you know do a little housekeeping on this in, in, the, in the first place. Now, uh, for those that don't know, Tim and I actually covered this on episode 20 of Third Degree Burn, uh, which was a little over a year ago. So if you want to listen to that one first before you go into this one and kind of see what we thought of it then – uh, just go out. We'll go ahead and put a link here in the 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 web page so that when you you can pull that one down as well as this one, the one that you're just listening to, and uh, you know check it out because Tim and I had a lot of fun with that, and I think that's the most operative word for what we thought of that book. It was Marvel fun from that late '70s era, and uh, it, you know it just. You know, it it had just everything that you wanted from a Marvel book at that time. But you, you you reading it now, it's like, I mean, did you read it when you were younger? Or you're not remembering or? 
It, I it, just it, flipped through it on the on the, the shelf. I never bought it at that time. Okay. So and until so I is, actually bought this off eBay again, and I have this ratty copy that's kind of, you know that's kind of faded and the covers coming off. I didn't recognize that. Oh, I have seen this before, but I couldn't have told you what the plot was. The only reason why I got this was because you made reference to it, you know, two episodes ago, and I went out and grabbed it. So, yeah, and and again, for anybody that wants to read it, if you can't find the floppy um, on Amazon, we'll go ahead and put a link on on our page as well. Uh, Amazon's got uh, a Kindle copy that you can read on your tablet. And it's in a uh, collection. It's a giant size Hulk, uh, and it's only like forty nine cents uh, to download it. And it's uh, really a good reproduction. Uh, the colors and everything are a lot, a lot more vibrant than what you'll see in the floppy copy. So I was really pleased with that when I got it. Uh, so I was able to, to reread it again with that, and uh, it made it made the book that much more gorgeous, especially that scene where the sentinels flying towards the asteroid but getting ahead of myself i think Uh, it'd be good to have it right in front of you because as we talk about how the sausage is made we're going to start referring to issue or page numbers and it'd be very helpful for you to understand and follow along to have it or a copy of it uh right in front of you otherwise i think you may get lost in the discussion here but go ahead the thing i just realized is that this this copy does not have any page numbers on it uh, you know, again, it's it's a reprint and there's no ads, so it is just you know that. But I can pull up my other copy. That's and my got scan's everything. got all the ads in it, so it has page numbers. But it, you know, if you're referring to physical page numbers, and you're gonna be a little lost because there are no ads. And I guess yeah. the one that you're reading the. I kind of well, like some ways- scan sometimes, just because you get it's, it's like a little time capsule. You get to see how it appears. If they if they do it, sometimes people have a tendency to cut things out. You know, um, now, now, Kirk, if I remember right, um, you brought up the cover on this one before because it had a lot in common with other covers. Well, or somebody it, made it, reference to to the giant hand, uh, which turns out to be Master Mold. And I thought maybe the positioning that this was a repeat design by Byrne from the Fantastic Four issue when they go to Wakanda. I've seen them side by side now, and that's not true. But it occurred to me that, gee, maybe he was repeating himself. But he likes to do those kind of angles because that gives you, you know, it's the mystery here, mm-hmm. you know, that of of who it is you're dealing with or what it is you're dealing with because you're seeing things from almost their point of view, uh, you know, but seeing it by the hand. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny because as I sit there and thought about it, and we discussed this a little bit before, but the Hulk that we see in this, this is the first time we've seen Byrne doing, uh, I think, a whole book with the Hulk in it. Um, he's done a number of covers which use this style of Hulk. But, you know, even when Byrne did the series himself, we didn't see this style of Hulk again after this issue. Because uh, what he did in the the issues, is it 214 through 220 and the Marvel fanfare, you know, with Bruce Banner removed from the Hulk, uh, he gave the Hulk a much larger appearance and i know that's 314 i'm sorry i got my uh my issues mixed up but even 314 where it's banner and the hulk together that's the closest you're going to see to this hulk 
mm-hmm. but but he's definitely got even more a more of a brutish appearance about him uh, in that one, and even in the scenes that were done before the Banner Hulk split that uh, Doc Samson uh, did. So I, I mean, sh- go ahead. I saw Burn at the uh, Mid Ohio Con approximately the time that those six or seven issues that he did were coming out and he splits the two characters apart. And I looked at that and said, wait a minute, I've seen this before that this has been done in about 129 or so. And so I brought it up to him and I said, Hey, you know, this, this concept has been done before. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, people keep telling me that, but I have no memory of it. And I think he was sincere. I think he really, was not aware that anybody had uh, had had done this development before and he thought it was unique and, and original and in the course of the other memory that I have of that conversation is uh, as he was talking and doing the panel presentations he kept talking about the incredible hulk in the past tense and it was like what are you talking about it's just coming out you're only like two issues in well he was already like three or four issues ahead and in fact had left the book had already left the wow know, so, you know, he was on to other things at that point, but that was very strange to hear him speak about it in the past when yeah, it, it was just that, showing up. So that yeah. bites. I mean, I, I still, you know, just lament the things that we lost because of, of, you know, things like Jim Shooter's, um, whim of iron as, as, as Byrne would refer to it. But, uh, and you know, at least we did get something. And uh, again, I haven't read the stuff that Byrne wrote with Ron Garney, and I just started reading Byrne's uh, Iron Man run with John Romita Jr. You know, it's uh, it's not something I've never never gone out of my way for something that Byrne's just written. I mean, I read some things, but not a whole lot. And so I'm trying to you know uh, get into that and see what I think about that. It gives you a better um, perspective on the writing. Than just what you're seeing in the books. Yeah, well, I he's, think he's, you'll discover in that Iron Man he had a goal in mind. When you when it gets to the payoff, uh, I haven't read it since it first came out, but it's it's pretty clear to me that he was aiming at that final target, the resolution of the story. That's where he was going right from the start. And okay, I well, won't spoil it for you, but but when you get there, we should talk about it. Yeah, and, and and definitely, I definitely want to to cover that on the show at some point in the future. I, I think that that we could probably devote you know a, a, a chunk of shows to the things that he's just written, and uh, and 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 see what we think about that. And of course, we can talk about the art from the various artists. In this case, John Romita Jr., which uh, it looks it looks beautiful, but I mean, every page is so big. And I mean in that in that you know there's there's very few nine frame pages in in those Iron Man stories that I've seen so far. They've all been like three or four at most, and a lot of splashes. But then again, that was at a time when that was starting to take hold and be the more prevalent method of storytelling. Jim, what did I did you want to say something. No, I was just going to say that uh, Bernie has often said, and he said that I think the last time we saw him in. Uh, Dallas at his uh, panel, or I think it was actually when I saw him in Boston, that he's <clears throat> he's always considered himself a writer that draws, not a right artist that writes. So he, I think if and I asked him that at the panel in Boston, I said if you had to choose writing or art, what would you choose? And he said writing. So that's where his true passion is, even though you know 
As controversial as may seem, I think he's a better artist than he is a writer. Someone was asking recently where and when he initially said that, mm. and it, it, on on Facebook, I think it was in the um, the Two True Freaks Cantina. But uh, well, so now I'm going to send them to you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so getting into you know this story here, you know we had already done the synopsis in um, issue you know in in the episode twenty, but Kirk, did you want to kind of? Just gave your brief summation? Yeah, I can summarize this fairly quickly. I'm going to kind of do this off the top of my head. And again, we're not going to go exactly page by page, but the story Mm -hmm. begins with uh, Angel in his uh, chateau and being visited by Bobby and two women um, who he's entertaining. Cut to uh, Gamma uh, Hulkbuster base where Doc Samson is attempting to treat the Hulk or try to uh, calm him down quite a bit. There's a couple of pages of side story with uh, his efforts and frustrations of that. And then while cut back to Arizona where Angel has put on his costume and a stranger has walked up to the pool, has invaded his compound, so to speak. And it looks to me like a buckskin mountain man. And by that, I mean somebody from the old West, maybe a time traveler covered in leather or buckskin He's got a wide brim hat. You can't see who he is. I thought he had um, a, a flintlock rifle, but apparently it's some sort of a ray gun. And he attacks them. Well, the gals get shuffled off to a, a secure room, a safe room, as Bobby converts over to Iceman, and they engage this guy. And Bobby freezes him solid in the pool. The guy breaks free, much to their surprise having doubled or tripled in size and reveals himself to be master mold. That's important. That's one, put a pin in that. Cause I want to come back to that point later on. Mm-hmm. They struggle to get away from him. He captures Iceman and puts him inside his chest and angel realizing I'm overmatched. I'm in trouble. Goes for help. He literally tries to outfly the Sentinel flying down to Hulkbuster base where the Hulk is and put another pin in this he makes it he outdistances the sentinel gets there first and a battle royal erupts as master mold arrives and tries to get the mutant well the hulk gets involved doc samson gets involved but it's the hulk that pursues master mold as he leaves and doc samson literally falls short and falls on his face so um as master mold flies away and not just flies away but leaves the atmosphere the Hulk starts to lose his breath and doesn't understand why and is literally attached to his ankle as he apparently blacks out. And I'll put a pin on it because that's another point that I want to come back to right there. Gorgeous shot of uh, Master Mold approaching what I thought was Asteroid M, but is not. Apparently it's his own personal floating command center uh, on an asteroid. We come back as the angel wakes up Uh, Warren wakes up in a plexiglass tube where he, Bobby, and the Hulk have all been imprisoned. But it's kind of funny because they're labeled correctly. Iceman is in the Iceman tube. Angel is in the Angel tube. But the Hulk is in the Blobs containment tube. (laughs) And he immediately flexes his muscle and breaks out, freeing the Angel at the same time. While the Hulk, being an engine of destruction, just goes on a rampage and runs around destroying things, tracks down Big Robot, as he calls uh, Master Mold, ultimately finding him in his command center and shattering his giant screen Cerebro, 
where uh, Master Mold apparently is looking for mutants. And uh, a little side note here, the crosshairs happen to be on burn in Calgary, uh, in Canada. Uh, but that's a side <laughs> note. So let's keep going. He, uh, the, the battle continues. The Hulk wow. tries to take him down. Uh, great scene of fight. Finally, Bobby says, wait a minute, you're not behaving right. You're not like any Sentinel we've seen before. Who are you or what the devil are you? And the master mold says, well, I'm Stephen Lang, or I was before I died. My brain images have been, a brain scan has been uploaded into master mold, and uh, I'm more than he ever was. And the angel calls BS on this. He says, no, Lang is a vegetable. He's in a shield hospital someplace. The Hulk starts to attack again and literally tears master mold apart and finishes the job. Uh, so at that point, they've got to get off from this asteroid. They realize they're in space. And again, put a pin on it as they leave the room and Master Mold twitches, starts to move again. That's a third point that I want to come back to. Ultimately, they find an escape capsule that is human-sized, but the release mechanism is jammed. They trick the Hulk into kicking it and freeing the, uh, the two X-Men to fall back to Earth. And as they land in the ocean, the um, space station or the asteroid explodes. They think the Hulk has been wiped out. But no, he's ridden the capsule all the way down through the atmosphere and is actually on this little ice raft with them. He decides he has to go back to his friends at Hulkbuster base. And they are uh, alone afloat on this chunk of ice when they say, uh-oh, we left the girls in the safe room. We've got to get back to them. And that's where it ends. So that's a very quick summary of this issue that uh, is basically an annual. But I think it was originally something else. You guys have any comments? Well, I, I actually was really surprised when you pointed out the, the the burn bit on there, and I had to zoom in on the on the the, the frame to see that there. Mm -hmm. So uh, we now have the explanation of how John Byrne is so fast and so incredible as an artist. <laughs> He's a mutant. His mutant mm -hmm. power is his artwork protection. Well, I mean, come on. They had Doug Ramsey, whose power was to understand every language. You know? uh, this is just, you know, beautiful art. That it, that it, is that a, did not serve him very well in a uh, in a career or a uh, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> a job that usually requires you to be able to to uh, defend yourself. So. No, he overreached. He overreached. <laughs> he had no business out there. No. no. Anyway, moving forward. I think this is a gorgeous book, and I agree. It's a it's a fun romp. It was a summertime read, uh, an annual, and it lives in people's memories. Great. But I've noticed a couple things from my childhood, my mem summertime memories, that make me look a little closer at this. And I have some questions. Um, yeah. Let me back up a step. When the original six Fantastic Four annuals came out, everyone was special. It was unique. It was different, whether it was a submariner attacking the human race or the origin of Dr. Doom, his backstory, or the wedding of Reed and Sue, or the original Human Torch and Johnny Storm having a battle royal. Everyone was unique, a different type of story and important. As you get to the fifth and sixth issues, that is the annuals, Fantastic Four annuals five and six, they tend to shift just a little bit. The sixth and final Jack Kirby annual was the birth of Franklin Richards, and it introduces Anilius, 
or a nihilist or however you want yeah. to say that in, in an adventure in the negative zone. It's the fifth annual that is interesting and unique and is what really has driven my investigation into this. When it came out, no copies showed up in my town in mid-Michigan. Like, it didn't show up anywhere. You couldn't find it. And I wrote to Marvel and said, hey, what's this deal? And they said, oh, well, you can order it from this address. Literally, I got a postcard with a note from Flo saying, you can pick it up this way if you want. And I didn't. It was years before I got a copy in my hands. And I noticed something about, about that issue, about the fifth annual. It introduces Psycho Man. But more mm-hmm. importantly, when you read the story, it is an inhuman story and a Black Panther story yep. in which the Fantastic Four barely guest star. Literally, Johnny and Ben go through the story, but Reed and Sue are virtually absent of, through the whole thing. So I started looking at that as a, a young man, and I started saying, why would they do this? And then I started doing a page count. There's a backup story in that fifth annual with the Silver Surfer fighting Quasimodo. That's about 10 or 12 pages long. So I started literally counting the pages and I discovered something. That in fact, this adventure in Fantastic Four Annual 5 was two regular 20-issue stories jammed together. It's very obvious. And I'll try to share the image uh, well, in the know, show I- notes. As I'm looking at this issue, at this angle, it's angle five, and, and yep. I'm noticing that there is a, a filler story um, that guest stars like Jack Kirby and, and other people, and there's a phone call from Irving Forbush's mother. I mean, it's a funny little uh, Marvel uh, bullpen mm-hmm. story. And then, Comedy of course, bit. Yeah. And then, of course, there are, are full-page splashes of Blackpool and Gorgon and Medusa and Triton and Karnak and Crystal. And then it's got another thing with uh, – I mean, it's just all sorts of filler stuff. Maximus the Mad, a, uh, a bullpen pwn-up uh, – excuse me, pin-up of Galactus, Silver Surfer, Watcher, Doctor Doom, uh, Black Panther, the Lockjaw, and – I think Wyatt Winkfoot and maybe Alicia Masters. I can't tell for sure. It looks like her, though. And then, I mean, there's all sorts of pinups and... and they were a special. Silver, there's a Silver Surfer story. Yes. And, I mean, it's... Yeah, this is just... And you must look at the editor of this book and say, okay, they just needed to fill up, fill this up. Yes. And I think that's what the case was. I think due to the internal politics of Marvel or miscommunications between Stan and Jack, and we're not going to get into that, they had to jam two individual issues of the Fantastic Four together to fill up this annual. So if you count the pages from 1 to 20, you'll note there's a very convenient break at the bottom of 20 that clearly the heroes are regrouping and they're marching off. It's like, okay, let's take the fight to the enemy and there's a very odd yellow arrow to one side that says feast your eyes on this marvel them uh you'll never see such a collection of heroes well that really takes you out of the story and i'm convinced that that arrow used to be or originally was a next issue box saying starting next issue the fight gets serious because when you go to the very next page the 21st page it's missing something you're right in the middle of a fight yeah, no, then a split second later. No 
overarching establishing shot, no splash page. It's like something's missing, and I'm convinced that what's missing is the full-page splash that would have started the next issue. So instead, we suddenly get thrown right in the middle of something, and it turns out it's an illusion, and they march right on through it. So that seam that you can look at and figure out if you just count the pages is the clue that I want to apply to this incredible Hulk book because well, I see this lots is what's of weird scenes. with that is that what you got is 20 pages. Um, let me see here. Yeah, it is. It is actually 20 pages of story and then you've got that and then 10 pages of story and it's done mm-hmm. with the and backup of the silver surfer filling out the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but no, that's, when that's you go- not, they, that, that uh, model they would use later when before to, you know to your point before they started doing the big you know when the 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 80s when they were when they started doing all the the crossovers were all the annuals so they would cross over everything through all the annuals for everybody uh, I think even now when you get an annual a lot of times it's not a, an extra long story it's a standard story but they may have five or six or three or four backup stories within it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they're just, and a lot of times they're, you know, annuals sometimes were for tryouts for, it's a lot of times it's not the artist that's on the regular book. It's somebody that's yeah, exactly. either trying them out or they're giving them a chance or, or their backup stories. Are um, they even doing annuals now? I don't, I don't, they come and go. They're, they, you, know, you know, for a while they had them and then they would stop and they would come in again. Um, I'm not currently reading comics, so I don't know what they're, what they're, if they still are doing annuals or not, but, um, I think because my my collection of, of Fantastic Four is very spotty after two thousand six, so I, I have no idea what what's what's been done after that. Well, I've got annuals up to two thousand one in my digital, uh, my CBRs, but I, I'm curious. Yeah, and that's I, as far as that goes. Yeah, you're I, right. I didn't put that, that that together reading this when the first time we went through this, but now that you mention it, it does make sense. But to me, this almost feels like it could have been a team up. You know how yes. a Marvel team up would start with this character, have their story at the end. They would come to the new character, then it would jump off to then it would go with their story. So, do you think? Because I don't see a clear where are you think in the clear divide is in this issue where that might have been the breaking point between issue, say, say, say issue one and issue two. Well. It, it, uh, there's a couple different possibilities. I think the, the pitch for this story probably went through two or three different revisions, which is why we have some of those loose ends or things that got dropped along the way or that a page got, got cut. Uh, but specifically, the things that I want to point to you are the 10th uh, page of artwork, the 10th page in the story, the 20th page, and the 30th page. The multiples of 10 each one forms a breakoff point. So you could have had, could have had this in a split book where there were 10 issues of or 10 pages of story and then the next installment was going to be the next 10 and then the final 10 except this story actually goes to 36. So there's a little slop that's left over. To answer your question, where do I see the break? It's the full page pinup that uh, Brian likes so much that shows uh shows the master mold flying up to the asteroid um, in terms of numbering. And this is weird because they numbered every page in the book, including the ads. 
it's uh, between 24 and 25, that full-page um, pinup of Master Mold arriving at the asteroid. I think that's the split between the first uh, issue adventure, which is all about the Hulk and capturing the mutants and Master Mold taking off with them. And then the second issue is, oh, we woke up and we're here on this asteroid. We've got to get away. How do we get back down to Earth? There's like two different tones in the book or two different movements, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, I, and I'm looking at kind of right now and I can see uh, where that would be like a, that's kind of a cliffhanger where he arrives at the asteroid. Yes. And, okay. You know, tune in next week to find out or next month to find out what happened. Uh, and then we well, come I, into them. I would say the cliffhanger is as the Hulk is hanging on to his ankle and I can't breathe. And that's where it should have ended with the next issue. You know, find out how he, he gets out of this in the next issue of Hulk team up or whatever this was originally pitched for. You want to go back even earlier, the bottom of page 14, which is the full page reveal of Master Mold. I was thinking about that, that one too. Yeah. That is a great reveal and cliffhanger and right there between the first 10 pages and the second 10 pages. And that and it, that brings up uh, one of those conversations that Byrne talks about where you have with Jim Shooter. And Jim Shooter did not like having a villain reveal on the last page as a full page splash. He felt like that just made it an ad for the next book. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? What's what's so bad about that, <laughs> you know? But uh, and, and that's exactly what this would have been if that was if that was the cutoff spot. Um, and now was this was was Shooter actually editor in chief then? Because this is what seventy five. Yeah, yes, it says Jim Shooter editor in chief. Okay, seventy seven. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so I mean that I don't know if that's part of what played into this. And they said, well, why don't we make it you know the an annual. Yeah. Or it, you know, they, they, you know, they, they did it and they had it in a drawer. I don't know. There's a lot of questions about the production of this that I would have had because the Master Mold's appearance and coloring and, and everything is different mm -hmm. than anywhere else he's appeared. And of course, with the the whole Stephen Lang bit in there as well, it uh, it adds a lot to it. But uh, again, have you guys been able to find anywhere that explains the size changing capability? No, I haven't. It just says, it. just says in Wikipedia that some have that capability. That they just brush it over like that. They don't say, explain, or why he's dressed as, you know, Davy Crockett. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I can no prize this. I can yes. give you a poor explanation, but I don't buy it. I think it's just something they got lost on the cutting room floor, or, you know, as they were shuffling the story, that it just got lost. He doesn't change size until the mutants exercise their powers, specifically until Bobby, um, you know, ap applies this huge quantity of ice around him. He gets frozen in the pool. So he's either reacting to the mutant energy that's being released when Bobby makes this mammoth effort, and that's fueling his size change. I've hmm. lost my train of thought, or what? There was another possibility, and I I don't remember what it is. But it's it's at you know, as Bobby says, something tells me this isn't an ordinary sentinel. You know that that big reveal. I think there was some additional explanation that that's why he was seeking them out so he could regain his stature, his size that he was trying to provoke them into a fight. Why he's dressed as a mountain man, I don't know. Except you know, it was the Inner Mountain West. 
and uh, Arizona and the great, you know, mountain man theme from the, the West. I can't make much more out of that. Well, it almost right. seems like he can change size, but he can't change his appearance because even when he he attacks them and you kind of see under the under his that wide brim hat that he still looks like Master Mold, so he can't look like mm-hmm. a human. So mm-hmm. he, if he's, I guess if he's, but to the unexplained answer, I mean, question is, obviously he has this asteroid uh, base that he's created or taken over, whatever. He's flown down to he's either detected uh bobby and warren flown down there disguised himself and snuck up on him or it almost is like he was always in the area anyway and he was spying an angel then bobby shows up and he decides well who knows what he decides you know well i've got two guys now i can collect two of them Um, right you know it's just odd motivation it's not real clear what he was going for what he was what was going on well anyways that's this is a, a Burn Stern uh, collaboration. Co-plotters, they get both both have, have credit here. Roger Stern is the writer. He usually doesn't lo- leave loose ends like this. They have this thought out. They're a great team, and they work well together. They always have. And so I'm so surprised to see loose ends like this. It just It's another clue that something got smashed together. Something has been lost in the production process. Well, I don't know if... Do we know if I know this is their first time to work together? Uh, no, 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 no. They've worked together all the way back to Charlton and well, CPL. Yeah, but this is the first first uh, together process with yeah with Roger Marvel. Stern and Bob Layton and Byrne. And it's funny because Bob Layton had said this is what really launched their careers at Marvel, and Byrne's been on the X Men for over a year at this point. Huh. So but I don't it, know if they were uh, were they handed. You know, they had to. They didn't have an idea. But did somebody hand them, perhaps Shooter or somebody, maybe Bob Hall, handed them two stories and said, "Guys, make something of this." Yeah, make uh, this into the annual. Right, because we know that they are. They have, at least artwork-wise and stories too. They have them. You know, for filler issues. You know, they have that stuff that somebody's done. It's put in a drawer, and when they needed mm-hmm. to pull it out, and they'll throw it on, uh, because they're behind schedule. Whatever the reason. So I wonder how much of this is is it is this his original uh, story by Stern that then he worked with uh, Byrne to flesh out or like you know, or to fit into a Hulk annual right yeah we gotta we gotta do a Hulk annual we gotta fill forty pages here's two stories you know do a do a menagerie on them you know take two things and 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 fill in the 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 middle and the back and the end do some bumpers and uh, you know uh, and make a story out of it. So that's what I think happened, because this fits seamlessly in the Hulk uh, continuity between issues. He's I don't I haven't read the issues on either side of this, but he is apparently seeking help or treatment from Doc Sampson in the issue before this, and then this resets the chessboard back to the same place yeah. so that he's still there at the end of this issue seeking help or or you know it it it's. Nicely positioned for the Hulk, but for the X-Men, it's like, where does this come from? So, I don't know. Kind of makes you want to scratch your head saying, hmm, if I had a time machine and could go back, would I try to stop the coronavirus or would I try to figure out what (laughs) happens here on this Hulk annual? Okay, I'm also finding that there were non-posted pages. There was a scene where a rocket is being launched 
and is plotted and drawn, Doc Sampson races to the pad, leaps up and grabs on the rocket. We've seen that, though. Uh, Where are you reading that from? Where are you getting that information? I, I did a search of, I, I did a Google search, site Burn Robotics Hulk Annual. And I, I found a, a, a reprinted page, but, uh, you know, Shooter saw that page and demanded the panels be redrawn. So Burn had to redraw that page with Samson and the Hulk both trying to get onto the Sentinel. 23, then. That yeah, because it, it says Doc Samson appears to be stronger than the Hulk. Um, but uh, it, it's just, just that was just Shooter's um, interpretation of the page, because Roger Stern's writer, Bob Hall's editor, and several staffers who had seen the pages argued that that was not the case. The Hulk leapt after Samson, so the fact that he caught the rocket at all showed that he was strongest one of all. Uh, oh, they just cut up the page and repositioned it. He didn't have to redraw, redraw it, and Shooter was satisfied at that. Yeah, you know, for, for whatever reason, 23, that page just didn't feel right as I was reading it. Basically, it's showing Doc Samson failing and falling on his face. I thought that was a very odd note that you would would use uh, for one of your heroes, for one of your characters. And all it really does is position the Hulk then on the ankle of the of uh, Master Mold as he, you know, goes for the ride of his life out of the atmosphere. The artwork just seems to be different too. Look at twenty two; it's great panel layout and, and dramatic angles. Skip twenty three, and then. 24 is, is, again, about half and half of standard layout and, and unique angles. So it's... I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that about page 23. It's just something is off there, and now I understand why. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and I, I wouldn't have caught that before if I hadn't read that. Huh. A lot of the shading that you guys like I've just listened to uh, the, your 20th episode. It's a uh, Zipatone. Uh, yeah. This, this artwork is heavy on Zipatone, especially on uh, Master Mold. Yeah, Burns' complaints about Leighton's inks um, were specific to this issue. Uh, he said you know, Leighton was really good at making everything look metallic. The sentinels, the mountains, people's faces... <laughs> he, wasn't, he was very unhappy. He, he said Backhanded that he was, compliment. Well, no, he was not pleased. He he was pleased with the work that he did on. I mean, he looks back on it now with that with his eye today. And I'm, when I say today, I mean whenever he he wrote his uh, response on this, which was a couple of years ago. That you know he looked back on this project and he can see all of his failings as an artist when he was that age, because you know he's got a very critical eye on his own work. And he said, but you know, and he was pleased when he was a young younger man at what he had done but once it was inked and printed he was you know not happy with the final product he felt that Leighton had muddied up the art hmm. interesting now i'll tell you this you know thinking back to that day and age of course we were at that point getting used to burn in austin Yes. And I'm talking about the, the readers at the time, not me specifically, because I didn't actually start reading these until uh, one thirty X-Men 132. Um, I believe I'd seen uh, Burns' work in Marvel team-ups before that, like the Captain Britain issue. I, I, I seem to remember that. 
and thinking it was cool, but nothing really caught me off guard as well as X-Men 132 and the first time I saw that and realizing what I was holding in my hands. So, you know, this right here is was something, again, I didn't find until years later. But even at that, I still think it's beautiful. I think that there are things in the art, especially where the Sentinel's concerned, that make me go kind of hum. But I think it was Byrne finding that um, place between Neil Adams, Kirby, and himself. Mm-hmm. That because uh, this is the you know this is before Days of Future Past was done, and only the only times he's drawn Sentinels was uh, X Men one thirty eight and then in Days of Future Past, up to this point. So this right here is his first time drawing Sentinels, and it, Master Mold to be more precise, Master Mold himself is not like all the other Sentinels, so right. you don't necessarily can can expect him to look the same. The coloring of the Sentinel and that was that was the thing that that threw me off because I'm always accustomed to be, them being that purple and blue. But uh, this goes back to Avengers 102 through 104, where Rich Buckler had drawn the Sentinels, and um, their sleeve, their uh, arms and legs were colored more like this, with the purple, and not this gray slate blue kind of color. So that story precedes this annual by quite a bit. Uh, it was 1972, so five years. Okay. And yeah, and, and so I, you know, and I'll I'll bring this up now is that you know getting ready for this show, I've kind of gone back and done a, a little historical look at the Sentinels from the the beginnings in X Men fourteen, uh, up to Days of Future Past, just trying to see where they really appeared and where they showed up. And I I, I didn't get the complete amount because I just didn't have enough time this week. I had a lot of work going on and family stuff going on, but. Um, after we finish talking about this one here, we can kind of go over that a little bit and see, you know, the the journey that we've taken, especially with Elswin and what it makes use of. Because, as you know, the Sentinels that attack in New York uh, were the uh, Bolivar Trask Sentinels. And those are the ones that were by far the most deadly. Which Which issues are you talking about? Uh, in Elswen issue ten. Okay. When you when you yes, when you see yeah, the Sentinels attacking New York, yeah, and I believe it was on the double page spread. Those are Larry. I thought those were Larry Trask. Larry Trask, yeah, yeah, Larry Trask. Larry Trask was the second one. Bolivar Trask was the first yeah, he did, one. Right? He did the Mark yeah, Twos. Yeah. I meant Larry Trask. Yeah. I had to go back and look at that because I didn't remember if he had said Larry Trask or Stephen Lang, you know, and I wanted to make sure. But, uh, yeah, well, any, anyway, but the other thing that, that, that I had, a, the, the, the other thing that rose the big question to me, and no one's answered it yet, is on uh, page 25, and that's where the Sentinel is flying towards the asteroid. What body is that behind the asteroid? Oh, if that's the moon or the Earth? It can't be the moon, and it can't be Earth. Because on page 24... You see the Sentinel flying, and the the moon is. You know, you see a yep. profile shot of him, and the moon is right there behind him, between him and the Earth. Yep. And then the Sentinel on the next page is flying towards the asteroid, and there's some huge body there. So Again, I'm just like makes for a good argument that those two pages were not supposed to be next to each other in the same issue. That there yeah. should have been a split there, 
that one's the end of one issue and the other one is the splash for the next. Yeah, and I think they just colored them. I mean, if you look on 24, the the moon is kind of a pinkish purple and then it's the same color on 25, although I think it should be yeah. colored green to in 25, I think that's supposed to be the earth. Yeah, I agree. That's the only thing that makes sense, but hey, it's comic books. Yeah. It's, it could be that he had to fly around it to get the approach vector. And that's so that's a that good would be the earth. Yeah. That's the no price. That's why he's in an arc as you see him flying in towards it. He's flying in an arc. You can see the curve of the uh the boot jet exhaust. So that's that's the only explanation. And but then again, I I I love how he's got his arms stretched out like a kid would. Superman. <laughs> But then to find out uh, in in the reading that yeah this asteroid was a third asteroid up there you got asteroid M you had the Sentinels asteroid and this was another one that was that was up there and were you guys aware that there's a Sentinel base down in Australia? Uh, seems like I picked that up from the Avengers what yeah. one hundred two through one hundred four. Yeah, Trask had built one down there. Now, and, and before anyone says anything, Roy Thomas wrote the Avengers story with the Sentinels as well. So, you know, he basically was continuing his storyline that he started with Neil Adams back in the X-Men uh, late 50s yeah, issues. Yeah, 57 through 59. Mm-hmm. Which, for my money, that's the scariest. That's that's the penultimate story. That's the, the one where they really came into their own that's the one where I was really on the edge of my seat because you could feel the desperation in the art and in the story that this is their last stand. It's like, we're done. Well, we'll we'll get to that one in in just a minute because that one brought up so many things that I I wanted to bring up. I I just thought uh, was really, really cool. But getting into, you know, page 26 when the angel wakes up and you see the sentinel standing there, that is the most sentinel-type pose Mm-hmm. that we actually see out of Master Mold in the whole thing. Beyond that, he was so much more, I guess, organic, you know? Well, because he's merged with uh, Stephen Lang. He's kind of did yeah. a... He did a... Well, uh, so he claims. He did a nomad, you know? Somehow, the merging of them, they're, they're more than, they, than the sum of the two parts. So maybe that's why he can change size. Yeah. And Kirk, that was well spotted on the uh, the burn thing there with the cerebro, because I, I I had not even tried to zoom in on that to see what that was. Yeah, I noticed that when I listened to uh, episode twenty that you you hadn't caught that. So uh, that was the first thing I did as soon as oh. I got to this page. I was like, who is that? What is that? And there's something else that's roughly over uh, Nevada that I think is a circle that has question marks on it. I can't quite resolve it in the, the dim light that I'm sitting in. But, uh, the you know, little Easter eggs that Byrne throws in from time to time. Well, in the 77, is that just to say what year it is? Oh, is that what it says? I thought it was question well, I, marks. I see a circle with, mm-hmm. with, with just with two lines in it, almost like a yin-yang, and then the number 77 over that spot in the grid just before it says USA to the right of yeah. it. Yeah, I don't um, know. And then at the bottom, under the Sentinel's arm, the word foreign, a grid box, and the number 10. Mm-hmm. Don't know. And it looks like he's getting paid time off down below that because he's got PTO down on the uh, 
Sorry, yeah, that's a, 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 control a, panel. a work term from <laughs> for me. Yeah. I'm well, sure everybody and I don't think PT we brought plan. I don't think we brought this up when we covered the book. I don't remember talking yeah. about it. That his if, if this is his uh, plan to capture mutants one or two at a time, he's mastermind. Why is he not producing other more sentinels. other sentinels to do this work? Because this is going to take him quite some time if he's doing it one at a time. Um, you know, unless well, he's going to the original. You know, the original Sentinel machine was only, was building eight at a time. And uh, the Master Mold did need a human hand to assist him in doing it. I remember that from the original Kirby stories. Mm-hmm. I like the, but, uh, the if you've watched the uh, the 90s animated X-Men, where he's just sitting <laughs> yeah. there, op- and he opens his chest and just pulls out a Sentinel, and then he reaches in and grabs another one and just lays him down like he's... <laughs> Well, I still love that. Yeah, that <laughs> last line though that he says, "Wait, I'm still plugged in," <laughs> or whatever that was. <laughs> Very RoboCop like too. Uh, now, I think out of everything that's in this book, though, um, the most iconic image that's come out of it is the Hulk's facial shot from page thirty-five. And it's yeah. such an odd image too, but I, I've seen that printed in so many different places. I've even, I think, I've even seen it on a coffee, a coffee mug and T-shirt, but with a different word blurb, you know. Hmm. I noticed you used that. You selected that, or somebody selected that, as the uh, promotional artwork for yeah. episode twenty. Yeah, that was the best. I, I, I've got a when I create, designed our cover art, I. I've got a square box I can kind of pull from, so it doesn't lend itself to a whole cover. So I just try to find something in the book mm-hmm. that I can uh, I can snip out. And I thought that was a great uh, a great shot of the Hulk. Yep, I agree. Mm-hmm. So now the the lovely part of this, of course, is that what what wins the day is Hulk Smash. And, um, well, I mean, I mean, it's further on in the book, like page 39. I mean, Hulk did smash and smash and smash that Sentinel to the point where Angel says he thinks he's going to be sick. (laughs) Yeah, that that's kind of strange to me because he's looking at a giant robot with mechanical parts. He's not Mm -hmm. looking at human flesh or gore. So it's like I kind of scratch my head at that. Like, did somebody change directions here? No, no. The thing is, you got to realize that the Sentinel, number one, the the Sentinel's body is always going to be self-repairing. Like the Borg in Star Trek, everything starts moving, or even like the Iron Giant, everything starts moving back together. Now, obviously, they can't make all of that work, but you actually see part of it, you know, starting to come back up. And you can barely tell, and I don't know if that is an inking and coloring mist, but there are fluids and other stuff on the floor, there where the Sentinel's been smashed up. So that fluid, of course, is going to be hydraulic fluid, which is typically red. Yeah, good point. So, I mean, this is going to be a mess, and it's also going to be a moving mess. Yeah, I think you're right. It's been quieted somehow by through the coloring process. Mm -hmm. Somebody uh, toned it down. Think of Ash, uh, an alien. Yes, yes. You know, he's full of that milky whatever that is. That looks very oh, organic gosh. when he's getting, <laughs> yeah, he's getting torn apart. 
And it just, I think it's just it's just dialogue to help you have more of a kind of a visceral reaction to it. Yep. Just how it's savage the, the Hulk is. Right. You know, I think at the bottom of that page, 30, what is it, 38, 39, uh, when the hand starts to move again. Yeah. I'm very suspicious that that was the end of a, of a, how do I want to put this? If this was supposed to be broken into 10 page uh, sequences for a split book, for some sort of a team up book that didn't happen, that's the point where the story would have broken off. And that would have been the teaser for next issue. You know, it's going to continue. Now, I can't string the last six pages together to make any sort of sense. It's got to lead into something else. But, Brian, you even pointed out on the very final page, uh, what's the number of it? 47. The, the end page, 47. The the image of Iceman seems somehow to be pasted on over top of Angel. It's like it's it's a balanced panel, and it ends the issue, and it does what it's supposed to. But that's a very strange facial shot of Iceman. You have already discussed this, that Byrne was not satisfied with how he was uh, treating Iceman. But mm-hmm. it's like there, I see two wildly different art um, styles. styles between Angel and between Iceman in that panel. I have a feeling this was supposed to go on and continue, and somebody decided, nope, we're going to end it right here, and we're going to end it by putting a, a comic shot of Bobby's face and the bum, little Star da, Trek bum, thing. Bum, bum, yes. Bum. Yeah. It's <laughs> like it's been abbreviated. It's been terminated here when there should have been like four more pages where something else continues on or the next story begins. At least that's how I, I felt that, when that I That could have been Leighton himself. Maybe he drew Iceman, but... Back to your well, point, Kurt. Yeah, that would make sense. I think that the, when you see Mastermill's hand twitch, if you think about this, if that was, say, it it, it, it would not necessarily, that's the end of the issue or break, but maybe you don't see Mastermill again. Because you could still have the same problem. There's damage to the asteroid, it's fixing to blow up, they got to get off the ship. They go through the same process, they make the Hulk mad, he kicks him off, and they survive. That's panel could be strictly to let you know that well he's going to come back in some other issue or some other exactly. book or something to let you know that he's not dead so that he doesn't have to come up on the screen and basically threaten him and saying well you know if I'm going to die you're going to die too so that could have been or it could you have know, been a breaking the more, issue but. the more I think about it you know it's like like you said it, it looks like it was planned for something else and the fact of the matter is that in that day and age uh, there were so many different Marvel team up books or or thrown together books. You had your, they had their villain books. They had their you know Marvel two and one, you know, and of course Marvel team up. But there was some other you know you know the uh, reprint books and other things like the Marvel tales and the books they used to reprint Fantastic Four and whatnot, or even the Avengers. And the way this reads, it reads like, okay, this is getting ready to go into another. Uh, issue and you know it's just like this is the handoff if you're reading right. marvel team up with chris claremont writing you could feel the handoff between one issue and the next where peter's okay i've just dealt with this guy here now i'm gonna oh, oh, go on to this issue where i deal with these people here and it's a direct handoff and that you know right. that was um his style and it was you know the marvel style at the time so i'm thinking that they were probably considering putting a team up type thing that wasn't Spider-Man team up or Fantastic Four 
that and they they kind of balked at it and decided to go ahead and create a Defenders book or, or something else along those lines. Though I think Defenders is already a book at this time. Yeah, because they fl- they show up in the no, they show up in the because the champions had just folded, champions, right? Yeah, so they show up in the champions car. It, it could have been we don't know how old the story is. If it was an older uh, team up story. You know, that book originally started where it wasn't just always dedicated to Spider-Man. It, it kind of evolved into that. And I think yeah. actually later in the run, they actually had maybe one or two issues that were not Spider-Man centric. It was two other characters. So this could have been something that was designed as two issues of Team Up, never got never got developed because they started using just Spider-Man. And they didn't think, well, how would you put Spider-Man in this? You really couldn't do it. So maybe they dug that out and said, we'll just make it... Um, can't make it as two Hulk issues, which you could, because it like uh, Kirk said, it fits in nicely with his ongoing issues. Um, but they said, well, we need an annual, so let's put two of them together. You know, double the price, and we'll, and, uh, you know, yeah. And, and Roger Stern was writing the Hulk at that time, so it's not like it. It would be they could they could have put it in there. No, I I I think that they were going to do something, and they changed their mind. And I think Kirk's the one that really spotted all this, definitely, because I wouldn't have thought about that before. We didn't, yeah, we didn't think about that. I just we were kind of reading it on a uh, kind of a, fun a turn, my, yeah, yeah, it. kind of turn my brain off. It's it's great sure. fun. It's great artwork. Let's just enjoy it, kind of instead of uh, playing detective. So I got one other thing to to add. You you pointed out that we don't see uh, Master Mold after the hand twitch. But if you go to page you 42, do. he is on the view screen. Yeah. You could him. argue that's not him, that that's some sort of a pre-recorded message. But uh, he's yeah, reacting he's to him. He's saying, I've got weird mustache. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, well I'm anyways, saying you, you, could have, you could have eliminated that scene where you don't see him again. And yes. that hand twitch just lets you know that, well, we're going to see him later down in somebody else's yes. book. Yeah. And I agree. That's what it really felt like. Yeah. It really did. Well, listen, that's all I've got on this issue. We've been talking for over an hour here. Um, is there anything else you want to cover? And, uh, no, I, I, again, I think that, that you know we've said pretty much everything we can say and a little oh, bit yeah. more on this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think Kirk brought up a bunch of... Uh, I mean, he really, really shot, points, shot some light yeah. on some stuff we didn't think about. So it just shows it takes more than two people to kind of look at a book and dissect it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I don't think we'd have problems doing that with other things that we've covered in the past. Because, I, I, you know, it, having gone through as much as we have in the last couple of years and meeting him and uh, hearing him talk and then, you know, seeing what he's been saying on Burn Robotics, I think we got a much better bead on the man now than we did when we first started. I, I, I uh, you know, the... the there are things that I kind of want to revisit. It's, you know, it's like, especially like the Avengers 164 through 166 and a 181 through 191, even though he didn't do any of the writing there. He, you know, considered himself an art robot, but he still had so much influence on the way those stories were told. I agree. I agree. They stand out because of his presence. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, what do you guys say, though? We take a little break. Uh, come back you know, do a promo and we're going to come back and um, talk a little bit more about Sentinels Hi. 
I'm Thomas DJ, top professional. I'm Scott McGregor, talented amateur. And we'd like to invite you to join us for our journey through every adventure of the Avengers. No, not that Avengers. You won't find any tights, magic hammers, or fancy shields here. But you will find some supervillains and some hot women in tight leather, so there is that. And champagne. Oh, yeah, lots of champagne. With Umbrella, Charm, and Bowler, that other Avengers podcast, covering the seminal spy series that lasted from 1961 to 1969 on an episode-by-episode basis. Join us as we explore the television series that helps shape pop culture and made an icon out of Diana Rigg, Honor Blackman, and Patrick Dean. With Umbrella, Charm, and Bowler. That other Avengers podcast, coming straight towards you every month. Only on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Beautiful Sal was a stone-hearted gal, refusing to bill or to coo. But Clem was right smart, he appealed to her heart with that gal getting good old Mountain View. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that promo and that free ad for Mountain Dew. Anyway, <laughs> um... So what we're going to do now is we're just going to take a quick look back at the Sentinels uh, pre-Days of Future Past. I don't want to, to bring in anything afterwards because really all that has been supplanted and changed simply by the work done in X-Men Elsewhen in regards to what we're dealing with, the storytelling of John Byrne. Fellow executives, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the future of law enforcement. Ed 209. Please put down your weapon. You have twenty seconds to comply. So we'll look back at the original appearance of the uh, Sentinels back in the days of Lee and Kirby in issue X-Men 14. Now, the thing is, is that at this point in time, Kirby wasn't doing the full art chores on the X-Men. He was actually doing layouts. And uh, Jay Gavin would come in and do the pencils, and then Vinny Coletta would come in and erase a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, Vinny Coletta would come in to do the inking, excuse me. And, and again, I, I give Vinny Coletta a lot of crap there, but there's a lot of stuff he's done that I like. So it's a, it's a joke, and that's all it's meant to be. Uh, that being said, uh, issue 14, of course, was um, very popular uh, from a lot of readers, especially with those that, that are, are, you know, that love the Sentinels. But at the same time, it, a lot of it was uh, retold from different points of view in the Kurt Busiek series, Marvels. Now, have you guys both read that? I read it I've when read... it came out, but I haven't read it in years and years and years. Same here. I'm not yeah. sure which which angles you're talking about. Well, the uh, I mean, when they told when when he told the story of Marvels, it was all told from the point of view of the of the the photographer, photographer right. Phil Sheldon. So he 
you know, again, you know, he doesn't see all the stuff that actually happens with the X-Men. He's got, you know, what they know, the Sentinels traveling around and doing what they're doing, especially when they're flying around at night and trying to round up mutants. And that is just, you know, scary stuff in there. And then there's the scene where he and a mob had come across the X-Men in an alleyway. And, you know, even though he, you, you know, Phil Sheldon was not a guy that, that would raise a hand towards another man, he picks up a brick and throws it at Cyclops. And, you know, that's where you get that famous line out of Cyclops. And, you know, he says, you know, they're not worth it. That just scared the heck out of Sheldon. And, of course, you know, he had, you know, odd feelings about mutants for the rest of the story. But uh, the, the, the crux of it, though, goes back again to Lee and Kirby's first interpretation of the Sentinels, which they look to be about 13 feet tall at most. Uh, where they started there, now they're much taller. Do you, does anybody know how tall they're supposed to be? The Mark Ones and the Mark Twos. I think they're supposed. They say they're supposed to be about 30, 30 feet, but they call them three stories. And, so, yeah, and that that seems you know logical. Of course, the problem that you always run into, uh, and Byrne finds his ways around it very skillfully, is how do something so big maneuver inside of houses and buildings that are not made for something that large? Uh, Byrne just destroys the houses and buildings. <laughs> But like in the first appearance when they're in a TV studio, they're just walking around like they don't have to worry about the the um, the, the 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 ceilings at all. Well, well TV Kurt, studios. Kurt, yeah, Kurt works in a studio. Would that be possible? Yes and no, depending on what if they've remodeled an original building. Most television studios have high lighting grids, uh, like like on a in a theater uh, on the stage you won't see a lot of the lights because they're up above the proscenium arch. Same thing for a television studio, that mm -hmm. light grid, that ceiling is up so high in some places it's, it's absurdly high and you have to raise and lower that with, with cranes and with uh, winches and, and uh, pulley systems. Other places now it's just been, you know, put in at about 10 feet high to answer your question. In 1964 or 65, when this story was originally published, yeah, a television studio may have looked just like that. It would have fit a large robot, but not an oversized one that Burns has been drawing now. Yep. And page eight right there is, to me, that right there is your Terminator story. That's, that's where everything originates, because that's the Sentinel as a robot rebelling against people and saying, you know, we're you know, smart enough to handle ourselves, and now we're going to take over you. <laughs> well, but to, if you're tying that into Terminator, uh, Skynet didn't want to, didn't want to, you know, it was it was going to wipe out humanity. It didn't want to rule us or uh, um, uh, take us over, you know, or, right. or somehow uh, be our, our guardians. It wasn't that, I mean, but you do see that story a lot in, in science fiction where the, right. the, the thinking computer is like, well, I'm going to take care of you. You know, you're, you can't take care of yourself. You're too destructive. You're too violent. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take care of you. And I'll, uh, it's think of Apollo and, uh, who mourns for Adonis, you know, you know, I will, I will take care of you and you'll be my children, you know, because you can't be trusted. Well, yeah. And, and, and again here, you know, it's the Sentinels that first say that they're going to, help mankind by, you know, taking care of the mutants, and then later they just decide to take care of everybody. 
but uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But you know, the 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 Sentinels come in and they're actually defeated. Uh, and of course, this is a three story arc uh, that they have, where the Sentinels are, are actually quite powerful uh, and very hard to beat. And it seems like they get weaker as the uh, storylines go on. Yes. But um, in, in in this one, they've got ways of, of, of fighting all the X-Men's abilities and doing different things to them. And I, I just noticed that in the first story, they had like gravity ray, fire blast, stun rays, destructo beams. Uh, the Master Mold himself had electrical bursts and a disintegration beam. And we never see these get used much again later. They 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 always do something else. But the uh, of course the uh, fire blast um, gets put to re- if you want to call it that gets put to really good use in Days of Future Past. Well, the the first Sentinels are not learning Sentinels. They are they have all these weapons, but it's not until Mark II that yeah, uh, and they have to wait for Master Mold to tell them what to do. Yeah. I mean, they, they they could have conceivably the ability to wipe out any of the mutants, but if they're not told to specifically by Master Mold, they just go, well, I'm waiting for my next command. Yeah, he's the nerve center. He's he's running them. He's the master. Yeah, I would like to have seen Kirby drawing them 10 years later in the mid-70s. I'd love to see his interpretation of the Sentinels from that point in time rather than here. Because here they, you know, they they don't have the the appearance of menace that that Byrne and others were able to give them in later times, or Neil Adams gave them. Um, but I'm I'm betting that that Kirby drawing the Sentinels in the '70s would be a lot more uh, ornate and scarier. But here, you know, of course, again, I say Kirby, and and this is um, Gavin, um, was uh, Jay Gavin that's actually drawing. It's just Kirby's layouts. Um. But, you know, then again, uh, there was so much. The Sentinels had that base that was underground. They had the, the ground that would lift up and, and shoot all around. Yeah, that was like a bunker. Uh, like yeah. A World War II bunker. Yeah, and I mean, it's just, uh, again, this is a kind of Sentinel story that, you know, if you haven't read this, I, I, I definitely would recommend going back and reading it. Um, it's writ- written, of course, a bit simpler than the stories that we've, uh, read in, in later days, uh, the Roy Thomas or the uh, Claremont stories, but still a lot of fun. That's issues 14, 15, and 16 that uh, introduces the Sentinels and the Master Mold. And, of course, the Master Mold's got those two gymnastic rings that he still works with mm-hmm. back then. <laughs> back then, uh, that I thought was funny. And, I mean, again, the Master Mold was so much bigger than the other Sentinels. But they didn't do anything here that showed he has the capacity to grow or shrink that we saw in Hulk Annual 7. There's also a reliance on a large ruby crystal um, yes. as a major plot point that you never hear of again after this three-part arc. Um, I, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's a, it's a major factor in the, in the story. Right, yeah, and and when you go on to later X-Men stories, now, the next time that they actually appear is X-Men, if, if I'm correct, is X-Men 58, and that is... 57. 57, okay, the end of 57, when uh, Alex is, uh, yeah, you're right, they, they, they break in, of course, it's all the Neil Adams stuff, and Alex is going through his bit where he's becoming Havoc, and fighting against the uh, the living pharaoh 
and he's escaped him at this point, but it comes across the Sentinel who uh, captures him. But um, these stories are so much more dire. Yes. The story, the story of Neil Adams. You, you, you just feel like at any moment that someone could, could die. die. And the X, the X Men are just, of course, they, they believe Professor X is dead, uh, killed by grotesque, and so they're not, they're not aware that he's actually still alive. And was it Changeling that had taken Professor X's place? Yeah, and, uh, and a retcon. And uh, of course, he's revealed in the later issue uh, just after these. But the the Sentinels are definitely, you know, I mean, they're they're definitely scarier. Uh, he's definitely gives them a lot more menace and a lot more of an organic appearance. And they um, move faster and quiet, very quiet, because <laughs> they sneak up on everybody wherever they're at. Um, except but, yeah, except Lorna Dern, because when she first gets captured. She hears these thundering footsteps and then looks up and sees it's the Sentinels. That's the only time they kind of announce their presence. Uh, logically, the rest they're just you know they're they're uh, they're like Jason Voorhees. They can they can just be anywhere and they show up without any kind of noise. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, again, you know, looking at these Sentinels and and what they're doing, it, you know, if I had not read the first Sentinel story. I think I'd find these even more frightening as a reader. The first Sentinel story just made them look a little goofy. Yes. You know? And then seeing them here, you know, they're taller, more towering. And, you know, they definitely have got some really evil plans going on. Well, they've got, I think later when, especially when Adams start taking over, they have a real kind of Gestapo feel. These guys are marching through the city, rounding people up uh, with, you know, you and you, you know, they're kind of cold, dispassionate, can't be bargained with, they can't be reasoned with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's what makes them uh, more frightening than in their first appearance. You know, and that was just, I mean, who knows? I don't know what the origin of that was. If it's just they needed, a, the X-Men needed a new villain. Um and really, the other than them showing up in you know issue fourteen, and then they show up again in uh, fifty-seven. The would you say that these are? I mean, are these are the Sentinels really? I mean, they're always an X Men villain, or mm-hmm. primary tied to X Men. Are they? Would you consider them a? And the X Men's Rogues Gallery. Would you consider them a prime uh, antagonist? I mean, they don't show yes. up that often. Well, and, well, that, and see, that's the thing is that, is that we would simply because we come from that burn era. But, you know, the thing is, I think the readers that come from before that say, no, Magneto's number one well, and everybody else is that's, everybody yeah. else is number two and Sentinels are, are down even further. I mean, the, the whole reason Byrne did Days of Future Past was just show that Sentinels could be badass. Is because he always thought that that Sentinels got short shrift, and that's because the stories that we read with them, they don't actually kill anybody, do they? Well, nope. I I, I kind of nope. relate to think of how the Borg showed up in Star Trek. Sorry to get off topic. They yeah. were not no, to me throughout the series. They were not much of a of a threat. They never seemed imposing or that much of a threat. It wasn't until uh, first contact. Where you see them actually taking people over by injecting them with these nanoprobes or whatever, yeah, and then you suddenly you're turning, so that made them seem 
uh, you know, they're more like zombies. They really, then at that point, they really were like zombies. They, you guys can't even touch you or you're gone. So I think that's was the what because if you think because you were just saying Brian that we think of the Sentinels as being a, a prime enemy, but other than like what two or three issues, Burn doesn't really and Kermit don't deal with them at all during their mm-hmm. run. It's before you know Burn took came on the book and then after he left, uh, Shaw comes back with some more. So I think it's what to, you know what I'd read that he wanted to do Daisy Future Past because he wanted to do a Sentinel story. Yeah, because uh, he hadn't drawn them. So maybe it's because they are so tied to mutants as opposed as opposed to just being a bad guy. Well, here's a bad guy, and yeah, he usually fights the X Men, but they are geared specifically to deal with the mutant threat or the perceived mutant threat that that makes them um, such a prime X Men uh, villain. Brian, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said if you had not read the original story that the uh, the second appearance in, in X-Men 57 through 59 would be terrifying. I yeah. think that was true because the original X-Men, the, the first, I don't know, say 18 issues or so that had the great um, Jack Kirby art, that had poor distribution. And for a lot of that, they were bi-monthly, at least mm-hmm. for the first 12 issues. So stretched out over two years. You didn't know much about the X-Men. They weren't terribly popular. They were not A-listers in the Marvel Universe by any stretch of the imagination. So when they burst on the scene in 57, Marvel had much better distribution. They were now appearing in... Um, well, the Avengers, had, the Avengers had really come yeah. into their own. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Marvel was getting some real serious recognition and run, making a run for the lead uh, over DC. So... When they showed up, yeah, I'll testify to that. They were terrifying. It was like, who are these guys? And what what story was that? Well, we didn't know until they reprinted those first three Sentinel issues. You know, I think, what was it in? Marvel Superheroes? At any rate, it was, it was a, a 20, 25 Amazing Adventures. Book. Amazing no. Adventures. It was, a, it was the reprint books that I remember. Right. And that was yeah. even later, but... At that yeah. time, if you hadn't gotten the original run back in 64, 65, yeah. uh, you, you were out of luck until they hit those reprint books. And I remember very specifically seeing 14 reprinted and going, oh, they're so clunky. Oh, <laughs> here's this crystal ruby. And, you know, th- that's where I got it from. Uh, well, that's when I was re-educated, so to speak, on those original stories, which clearly Thomas had access to. He was drawing them. He was standing on, on the shoulders of that. But I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that was part of the thrill of seeing Neil Adams come to Marvel and, you know, just inject this realistic view of the X-Men in this terrifying continued story that didn't stop at the end of the Sentinels, but immediately goes into... Um, the Savage Land and, and uh, Sauron and, and, you know, it just kept rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. I mean, there was a great period to be reading comics. Unfortunately, the bean counter, Martin Goodman, didn't see the returns that the X-Men had really turned around. He was always wanting to kill the book, cut the book, cut the expenses. And so the decision was made to kill it. And then they got the sales figures and went, oh, maybe I made a mistake here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely made a mistake there. That was, uh, 
Sorry, but, you know, and, and well, and the thing is, Neil, uh, you know, Roy Thomas wasn't done with the Sentinels though, and it took him three years to revisit them. But then in uh, Avengers, I believe it's one hundred two, one hundred three, and one hundred four. Yes. Um, he brought the Sentinels back, and this time they kidnapped the Scarlet Witch. And uh, th- these are the Sentinels that uh, Cyclops, through logic, a uh, discussion in logic, had sent to the heart of the sun. And as far as the X-Men were concerned, that was the last they saw of them. Good riddance. Right. We thought they were but, done. Right. And, I and was, some, uh, oh, Go ahead, right? Ryan. I'll, I got something to interject in that. Well, go ahead and interject. Well, I was thinking, to... well, one, he did a, he pulled a Kirk on him. Uh, yes. And he, <laughs> and he, uh, he talked him into destroying themselves. Uh, did Cyclops ever consider, I mean, maybe he thought he had no other choice, but did he ever, did he ever consider that? What if they actually could accomplish the goal and they could destroy the sun? He just thought, well, they're going to fly into the sun and be destroyed. But what if they were smart enough that they could come up with some way of actually, uh, destroying neutralizing the sun exactly you know then you know (laughs) i my impression is that he never he never seriously thought through the plan and it was just a fluke that uh that he got lucky and that the the logic of the sentinels directed them to the sun i don't think that was his plan at all it was a last minute shoot for the hail mary desperation and it worked Against all odds, I don't think he was expecting that it was going to work. I think it was his his uh, telling the Sentinels to compute the value of pi to the last digit. Yeah, and and he, he just did it in, this, in, in in that way. And you know, I mean, of course, the Sentinels fly fly off. Well, three years later, in they Avengers one hundred two, Roy Thomas and this time Rich Buckler is the artist, bring them back. And they're, they come back from the sun. And this is where they, of course, bring in Dr. Peter Corbo and StarCore. Now, as I recall, StarCore started out in the, in the Hulk books, didn't it? I don't think so. But uh, I, I believe it did. But uh, anyway, so, you know, the, uh, he brings the Sentinels back. They kidnap the Scarlet Witch, and they're going to use her power. Now, it's not specifically because of her hex power, but because she's a female mutant. They could have done it with Jean Grey or any other female mutant, but they got the Scarlet Witch, kidnap her, and they want to use something from her to uh, affect the sun so that it creates flares that will sterilize humanity. Oh. And therefore, See, I didn't read this. Yeah, and then they would then genetically engineer human beings that are incapable of turning into mutants. And then those are the people that they would serve. It's interesting because I dropped out of comics with Avengers 101 just prior to this coming back. And it was literally seeing the the Sentinels crawl out of a mountaintop or out Mm -hmm. of a volcano that made me go, oh, you're kidding me. They're supposed to be in the sun. And that was it. I walked away from comics for eight years. Not yeah. only because of that, but that's why I've missed this arc. Well, and, and the thing is, of course, this uses the Avengers that we all know and love. Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, um, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, Hawkeye. Hawkeye in one of the ugliest costumes he's got. Um, sure. And, and I mean, of course, it's Roy Thomas writing, but as, as far as we, we also get to follow up with 
Judge Chalmers and uh, Larry Trask after what happened before, where Judge Chalmers basically is taking a very simplified Larry Trask because he's put the, the necklace back on him that uh, wipes his memory of anything Sentinel-related. And he's trying to get him back from being a simpleton to a normal person without taking the necklace off. But uh, you also get to see Blob, Eunice, the Vanisher, the Toad, and uh, Mastermind. And, you know, all of this is, is part of that, that same story that Roy Thomas started several years before. He obviously had more to say in there. But uh, the Avengers, of course, uh, fight the Sentinels. And um, it, it's funny because they Thor keeps taking a backseat to everybody else. So Thor... Only one time did I, I recall Thor actually hitting a Sentinel with his hammer, and he, you know, of course, knocks the Sentinel completely apart when he does it. And yet, you know, they do, he doesn't just keep going smashing the rest. It's like he's afraid that if he keeps using that, that they're going to find a way to defeat it, or find a find a way to defeat Mjolnir. They probably would have. Yeah, but uh, I. I you get to see a whole lot of stuff in this beautiful rich buckler art. And I was talking about, of course, the, the fact that the coloring in like the last issue, they, they colored the Sentinels differently. So they weren't purple and blue. They're more purple and that kind of, uh, white man flesh tone. I don't want to say just flesh tone because that would, you know, hey, feel like crayons. Hey, Brian, did you say, I'm, I'm just kind of looking this online while you guys are talking that this, the plot for uh, one or two was suggested by Chris Claremont. Really? No, it I didn't says. see that. Yeah, so... So, Chris Claremont... Now, at that point in time, was Chris Claremont writing the X-Men? No. Because this is uh, 1972. 72? No, he's not on the X-Men. Is he Is he even writing, or is he just a fan at that point in time? Probably a fan. Probably a fan, because he wasn't doing Team Up then, was he? No, no. not yet. That or, would happen uh, to, like, 75. Or, uh... uh, uh um... Uh, but that's, that's Iron, really Iron interesting. Fist. I was thinking Iron Fist. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I didn't know that Claremont had a voice at that point in time. He may it might have been or something. It, it, it doesn't expand on that, but it could say you know I don't know if he wrote in to Roy. Maybe it was uh, something he wrote in. That'd be interesting to ask him. You know, yeah. how did you get that idea to Roy Thomas? Well, there is a Roy Thomas uh, appreciation page on uh, Facebook. And they do answer questions. If you pose the question mm. on the page, they do give you a very satisfactory uh, response and explanation as much as he remembers. I'll ask that. Yeah, I'm interested yeah. to know that. Well, it again, it, I'll say this. You know, it's a, it's a good story, especially if you like Sentinels. It's you know, it's going to give you a little bit more of them that you didn't know existed. I I am pretty sure. You know, of course, the the next story that we're aware of. Uh, after this is Days of Future Past. Um, I'm trying to think if anywhere else Sentinels were actually brought up as real antagonists uh, between there and, and Days of Future Past. And I can't really think, well, of course, Hulk no. Angel 7. Uh, Hulk Angel 7 is the only only one in there where you have any Sentinels. So that's you know the, the bridge between those two stories. And then for us... The next step is, of course, X-Men Elsewhere, where we get to see the, the Trask Sentinels come back. We see the Mark IV Sentinels that uh, uh, Shaw had, you know, got built up. And 
I don't know if those Mark IV Sentinels were the same as the Mark IV Sentinels that they used in later issues of the X-Men, you know, the 140 and 150 era. era. Because, um, again, I, I, I kind of blocked some of that out because it was really, really bad art. And they weren't, sure. yeah, they weren't, they weren't handled very well. And, you know, it's funny though, I'll say this, um, reading, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'm sorry. You know, there, there is the, the Sentinel story that actually brought about the Phoenix saga, uh, you know, in the, the X-Men in the nineties. And, you know, it's like, I, I, that, that right there is, as I was, you know, getting ready for this, I got sucked in to those X-Men books and was reading those, um, and just really enjoying uh, Dave Cockrum's art uh, around those stories. And, and, of course, the inkers that were working on them then were, uh, I think, a little bit better than the inker or the inks that he got later when he did his second stint on the X-Men. Because the artwork in those, it's, it's obviously not burnt art, but it is beautiful in a different way. So it's X-Men 98, 99, mm-hmm. and, and 100. 100? Right. Okay. And that, that that's the story that leads in. You know, of course, it takes him back up to an asteroid. It's not the one from Hulk Annual 7. And, um, the, of course, the return back to Earth is where Gene uh, becomes Phoenix. Well, I know that there's one more thread that comes off from that arc that, that you're talking about. It goes mm-hmm. on to the to Gene and the Phoenix, but that storyline is revisited in the Falcon miniseries. I believe it's Falcon yes. issue two. It's yes. two or three, and I it's a one-shot that. story that ties perfectly. It's it's really good, but a lot of people have have tried to uh, uh, retcon that and, and take it out of continuity because it. It suggests that the Falcon, in fact, is a mutant. The more than his suggests link, his link to Red Wing. Yes, and I th- you know, they've gone back and forth saying yes, that's true, or and other times they've said no because you're hearing a malfunctioning Sentinel make the statement. It's not true. It's like uh, it was a brilliant miniseries. I really like that story. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember. Did Paul Smith do the artwork on that? I don't think and, so. See, now I'm going to go out to my world and look that up. Yeah. Uh, we've That'd we've be lost a good issue Tim. To, I think Tim cover. is buried in research right now. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, some of these books I haven't read. I mean, for, to, for being on a John Byrne podcast, I've got a, a lot of, uh, a lot of holes in my, uh, like I haven't read everything Burns done or, or, but I was, I was interested when I was doing a little bit of my research that during the, the, the Stephen Lang issues you were just referring to he created what he called x sentinels which were androids that were duplicates of the original x-men so that kind of to me that's similar to what Byrne did in elsewhere where he had uh shaw put the mutants inside like uh, armored suits to use their powers so yeah i'm i'm looking at I've the cover of, of that Falcon issue too yep uh, it is paul right smith on the cover yeah, but it's Mark Bright uh, on the inside. And Mark Bright, yeah, I liked his artwork. It was very clean. And um, he he had, I wouldn't say it was burn style. It worked really well with Bob Layton when he was on Iron Man. And uh, when he did his Green Lantern work, though that's been, I don't think you can buy that anymore. But uh, the yeah, the, that, that's, that was a, a good appearance of the Sentinel. Though there was a little more psychological story in there wasn't there with the sentinel it was more psychological than it was a, a battle 
I'm no. trying to remember because it, it was just for the one issue. Yeah. Each issue, each issue is a, a different side of, of, of things with the Falcon. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, that was a, a fun series, four-issue miniseries. That was when they were doing all those great little four-issue miniseries. Like uh, they had done the, the Jack of Hearts miniseries, which while it was fun, it did ruin one of the characters from Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man that Roger Stern had developed, Marcy Kane. <clears throat> Marcy Kane. But uh, I like that Jack of Hearts series anyway. And then there was the the Punisher miniseries that was a five-issue, four-issue miniseries. Oh, yeah. Where four issues came out, and four then it and was five, like the yeah. cliffhanger, and then the issue was number five in a four-issue limited series. <laughs> when did this, uh, this Falcon uh, miniseries, I'm not really familiar, when did it come out? 83. 83? 83. 1983. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm to look into that. Yeah, they're all separate one-shots, but it's definitely worth hunting up. I actually had two copies of that issue, and I gave one away once. Now, issue one, uh, Paul Smith actually did the pencils, but Benny Coletta did the inks. And let me see. Mark Bright did the last three. But again, it's Mark Bright, and it wasn't Benny Coletta. It was Mike Gustavich doing the inks. So that's a that's a fun, fun little series. <clears throat> I guess that was around the same time that the Vision Scarlet Witch miniseries came out, too, wasn't it? The one where we found that they finally said out loud that what they shouldn't have said, that Magneto was their father. I remember that series, but I don't remember in what the 12 sequence issue series where they have the kids? Yeah. the first one? Yeah. Uh, I was thinking the first one. Was it, was it the first one where they, they br- brought that out finally? Hmm. I think it was anyway. Burns' idea, too. Well, I don't know that his idea, his idea so much, you know, is, is that he did what he could to accentuate the idea. When they did the 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 Wondergore Mountain storyline, where in, in the Avengers, where you see Wanda go up there and Bova, uh, you know, she she runs into was it she didn't know it, it was Quicksilver that ran into Bova, and you got the story about it. It sounded like the story Magneto told about the wife Madga running away from him because he was. Mm-hmm a horrible person and you just kind of put that you know two and two together but you also see pietro and you see magneto and other images and they look so very much alike and it just makes sense you think all the way back to the the brotherhood of evil mutants he saved their lives somehow they owed him a debt and he used them but still yeah it makes sense that he would be their father I heard Burns speak um, again at the Mid-Ohio Con years ago where he, he made the statement saying, yeah, it was all there. You just needed to connect the dots. There was nothing that contradicted it, so we did it. And that, from that, I thought he was taking ownership for the idea or that he was doing it in concert with somebody else, that he and Stern or somebody else had said, what if let's connect here and here and here? Mm-hmm. And that could be. Anything else we got to cover, guys? Well, you know, I was just going to state, you know, for for all of this, uh, I mean, obviously the guys that had the most uh, powerful effect on the Sentinels and their their menace would have definitely been Neil Adams and then Byrne. Yep. Um, Byrne definitely showed them in the harshest light possible with, you know, what he did, uh, just showing that apocalyptic future, uh, how he 
killed Wolverine, Storm, and off-screen Colossus, and uh, Franklin Richards, of course. Uh, that one right there being just the first time you saw anything like that. And that, that scene of the Sentinels hanging overhead with the light showing in on the X-Men telling him to surrender. It, you know, I mean, he, he sat there and was able to put, like, in that one scene, what you expected from the Sentinels all along. That they would be that kind of murderous, that kind of dangerous. And well, um, I, I think the, the Sentinels, from my own opinion, I think they're a little one-note because... Mm-hmm. They show up, they're, again, like the Borg, they show up and they kind of have one job. They're either going to kill mutants or they're going to round them up. But there's always a threat of that apocalyptic ending. So that's unlike, I think I can only relate, to other, or I would say Magneto's the only other one, that Magneto's endgame uh, end is always to either have mutants come out on top and the humans are going to be subordinate or something like that. Or the... Or the Sentinels. Anytime they show up, you know you know they're going to have to get defeated because if they don't, you're going to wind up with that end result. So that end result is always there whenever they're whenever they're uh, presented in a story. So I think that gives them a little bit of more character, a little more uh, spice, I'd say. Uh, other than that, they're just big robots that you know you're going to have to defeat once they show up, and they've always kind of got one goal. It's it's very sometimes they're going to kill mutants or they're going to round them up or sometimes um, they've got some other nefarious thing you know when when I kind of first I was reading uh, uh, X-Men Nimrod showed up when yeah. uh, uh, Ramita Jr. was doing it so he had a totally different kind of he was more Terminator stealthy like than uh, the the large ones that show up and start wreaking havoc but um, so that's, that's kind of my take on him I, I don't they're not my favorite X-Men villain, but I understand that you have to bring him in every once in a while to kind of, uh, to, uh, to kind of propose that major threat that this could end all the mutants at some point in the future. Yeah. And, and the thing is, there's been a lot of stories since where they've used the Sentinels, they've used the master mold, uh, and, you know, they've done a lot of things, but, you know, I don't think that they've really ever been, handled that great and part of it is because what you say their their purpose their goal has always been you know the subjugation of mutant kind or the destruction of mutant kind and anytime you bring that in you have to make really really dire circumstances uh, yeah i mean thanks and it, part of that is because days of future past made it so dire um I think it's funny, though, is that if you go into X-Men 142, is it 142 or 141, the first issue of that? 141. And there's that scene where Kate Pride is on that that uh, bus being hauled by the horses. And you look at all the people on the bus, and some of them got surgical masks on, <laughs> and they're all keeping their distance from her. And it kind of makes me think about what today is like, what's going on right now with uh, the coronavirus and the social distancing and whatnot. Hmm. Though there are a lot of people walking around out there that are not wearing their masks. And I, it's funny because I, I, just, I saw one guy sitting there walking into the store without a mask on. And I go, what a mutant. <laughs> and then I just realized what I said there. I just thought it was funny. But you guys have anything, any final thoughts on this? Um, no, I, think- I, I know we could probably go on for a while on, on a number of things, but 
you know, it's just that the, I think you made a really good point about the Sentinels and that, you know, they're, they are a one note villain. If they're used properly, they can be incredibly scary and unnerving, uh, even to just a reader. Mm-hmm. They weren't handled properly in the movie. Uh, I, I thought that they, they didn't, they made them either too indestructible at the, at the, you know, when they showed the, the Sentinels of the future versus the, the cheap, 1970s version of the Sentinels, or 80s version with the with the, the in the Richard Nixon scenes. Yeah, we didn't get to see the Sentinels as they should have been, where they were an almost equal foil, where the battle could go one way or the other. And I, I thought they they gave Colossus really short shrift in the in the movie by t- ripping them apart. But I think we need to do that commentary at some point. We keep talking about it. <laughs> well, again, you moved. Well, so, we can still do commentaries. <laughs> people are moved. Yep, yep. This is true. This is true. We can we can give that a shot sometime. The wonders of Amazon Prime. Yep. All right, well, Kirk. Do you I have think, anything left? Yeah, yeah I was gonna... say Kirk's got to go mow his yard. Yep. Uh, I was just thinking when you were saying there one note. Again, I'm reflecting back on X Men fifty seven through fifty nine, and the last one's titled "Do or Die, Baby." Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the reasons why that's so terrifying is. Every time they show up, they succeed. They capture somebody. The heroes are constantly losing every single interaction until we get to the end when the when the last three X-Men take the fight to wherever the Sentinel base was. And then it's just a fluke that they succeeded. Um, you, you just had a sense that they were losing, that it was you know, a constant failure, that every single mutant that was going up against them was being neutralized and taken away, taken off the board. Uh, that sense of desperation is something that I think uh, we bring to to Burns' Elsewhen series, and I think that's one of the reasons why it works because right. you know what's you know what's waiting, you know what's at the end of the line if they are not stopped now. And that's why I think they have to bring him in scarcely. You don't bring him in yes. that often. So that you can have that, it's a much bigger storyline going on when they show up. That you do have, it, like you said, it's do or die. It's either you stop them or you know, then we get this 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 really dire ending. So um, it, it's it's kind of like Terminator. Like think about it. You know, the Terminator shows yep. up, he comes back yep. in time. You've got to stop him, or else you've got um, you know, and humanity enslaved. And every time you've got to stop him, or else you know, apparently we can't stop it anyway because it always happens. But um, you know, I, I, it's why I think you can't, or maybe that's, I don't know if they're smart about doing that, but you can't overuse them. You have to bring them in every once in a while to kind of shake things up or to have a storyline to kind of remind us that this could happen. Um, and then you take them off the board for a while, then, you know, you bring them back in a couple of years. Anybody yeah. know what came of the last uh, um, Terminator movie? Uh, the Genesis, the, they they that retooled the, it. They rebooted, but has there been a second or a third movie announced? No, that not Genesis. Uh, Genesis was, was uh, the the second to last one. Uh, they of course have ignored that one. And um, it's Dark Fate is that right? Dark, I, Dark I, I Fate was it. was a uh, the more recent one. I I enjoyed it to a point, but I mean it just didn't have the Cameron creativity that the other ones had. So are they going um, on with a second and third? Uh, right I don't know. I don't know if they're gonna. They, they, they kind of left that one. 
Well, they they did a kind of a, a JJ Star Trek. They kind of changed the time. I don't want to give if you want to watch. I don't yes. know, they kind of changed the timeline a little bit so yep. that it's going on a tangent, so they can go yes. on a kind of kind of reboot it, but they can kind of go in a whole new way. But have those second and third movies in this arc been greenlighted, or is it all that, on hold? That I don't That's know. I don't think I, I don't I, think Dark Fate did that well uh, at the box office, so. It made two hundred and sixty-one million worldwide, and I'll bet you the budget was well over a hundred million. Oh, yeah, budget not, was one hundred eighty-five million. It's not a flop, so it, but it, yeah, it is because it didn't. It well, didn't. It wasn't enough double, of a success. Yeah, no, it didn't double the the budget. I mean, the thing is, they spent one hundred eighty-five million on the budget of the movie. They're going to spend an equal amount on marketing and advertising. So the movie has to make three times the budget. In order to be considered a success, well, that's an IP that they will never let die. It'll it may lay dormant, but it'll come back. Whether it's in this same timeline or it's a total reboot or it's some other reset, that's they're not going to let that IP go go to waste. They'll they'll revisit it somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all I think, I've got, guys. Yeah, that's um, I think it's same all I've here. Got. Yeah, yeah. Does anybody want to? Um, fathom an idea for what if you know i mean again you know we're going to be in this lockdown for a while i don't mind getting together on a weekly basis like this and it this if we have something worthwhile to talk about i felt this was worthwhile and so i definitely wanted to you know revisit the issue and talk about sentinels is there you know something that we can get together for next week or do you want to take that offline and figure it out or do you want to do the space 1999 or or what? Space 1999, it's a, a regular, that's just a regular uh, episode, but we can do that because mm-hmm. we already talked about it. i got to finish doing my prep for it, but yeah, we can can definitely do that, and, and, and I don't know if you're interested in doing that or not, Kurt, but you're welcome to come along. I need to find a copy of it to read. I, I've got I don't a have digital, anything. I've got a digital yeah. I can send you. I think Brian. All right. Can, All right. Yeah. So well, we can, I, think, I think that that's our cue to go ahead and sign off for everyone, and we can continue this discussion after. Okay. So... Uh, thank you all for listening in on this. If you have any thoughts, ideas, everything about the Sentinels, if you got something you want to bring up, or if you just got some suggestions on things that we can cover on future shows, maybe you've got some suggestions on something to read during the coronavirus lockdown that we haven't thought of yet. Go ahead and write us at gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Or you can also reach us on our Facebook page, and on iTunes or is that Apple Podcast at this point in time? It's called Apple Podcast now. We definitely need the feedback, people. We really don't know what you're thinking, but our uh, it, the numbers on the downloads are really, really good. They're a lot higher than you know what we've seen on regular shows. So, I mean, we must be doing something right. But let us know what it is we're doing right. Let us know what it is we're doing wrong. Anyway, with all that being said, for Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'm Tim Elliott. And I'm Kirk Greenfield. Thank you. Have a great day. Duck Goose Banner, belted by Gamma Rays, turned into the Hulk. Ain't me on Gamma Rays. Wrecking the town with the power of a bull. Ain't no monster clown who is as lovable as ever-loving Hulk. Hulk. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. 
That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gotta get burned at gmail.com that's g-o-t-t-a g-e-t-b-y-r-n-e-d at gmail.com drop us a line and tell us how we're doing till next time this has been third degree burn some men aren't looking for anything logical like money they can't be bought bullied reasoned or negotiated with some men just want to watch the world burn <laughs>